Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, one expert, Emily Benfer, put it this way. About 10 million people over a period of years were displaced from their homes following the foreclosure crisis in 2008. We're looking at 20 to 28 million people facing eviction between now and September. People have to fight their evictions virtually since housing courts are closed. And if you don't have that fast internet or don't get on that Zoom call properly, well, that's failure to appear and you lose. The impact of eviction, meanwhile, can be devastating. Making folks homeless in a pandemic is just a flashpoint of this country's affordable housing crisis and a reminder that, as a new report begins, housing is health care. The report, called Out of Reach 2020, The High Cost of Housing, comes from the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. We'll talk with Coalition President Diane Yentel. Also on the show, an election plus a public health crisis equals voting by mail, which requires not just a functioning postal service, but a well-functioning one. A pandemic in which more people need critical medicines and supplies mailed to them calls for the same. But just as more is being asked of the U.S. Postal Service, decades-old efforts to cut the legs out from under it are gathering force once again. And they're being amplified and abetted by Trump's new Postmaster General, Louis DeJoy. Listeners may know about Trump's obsession with making the USPS raise prices. Seems he mainly wants costs to go up for his sworn enemy, in his mind anyway, Amazon's Jeff Bezos. But he's okay with the public, for whom the Postal Service is the most popular federal agency and the only one named in the Constitution, suffering the consequences. What and who is driving the push to privatize the post office, and how have they managed to shift the conversation? That's the topic of a new brief from Lisa Graves. She's executive director at True North Research and director also of the Coke Docs Project, which might be a bit of a tip-off. All of that's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Imagine losing your job in a pandemic and then losing your home because you can't pay the rent. That's the situation facing millions of Americans right now. As many as 28 million people, say some analysts, may be evicted from their homes in coming months, as what eviction moratoriums some places had enacted are slated to expire, even though there's no reason to believe people will suddenly be able to pay then. So is the plan to just allow millions of people to be made homeless during a public health crisis? Avoiding that specter involves taking up the underlying crisis, this country's lack of affordable housing. Diane Yentel is president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. She joins us now by phone from Virginia. Welcome to Counterspin, Diane Yentel. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, in as much as there's been acknowledgement of what one would think is an obvious reality that most people who've lost jobs at a certain point will no longer be able to make the rent. It's been these here and there moratoriums on eviction. And then we see some emergency rental assistance programs like New York Governor Cuomo just announced. 
Not to say that that's nothing, and I imagine there are better and worse programs, but was that ever going to be enough to turn back this crisis? No, it was never enough, and we've known that from the beginning. It has been a helpful start. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, we have seen that if the federal government didn't intervene in a really significant and sustained way, that we would see a wave of evictions and a spike in homelessness. And so these limited federal eviction moratoriums and these state and local moratoriums that have been put in place have provided some protections for low-income renters and have helped prevent that wave from happening. But those moratoriums are rapidly expiring. As of today, there are 29 governors that have allowed their state eviction moratoriums to expire, and the limited federal eviction moratoriums expire next week. We have been tracking emergency rental assistance programs that have been created In response to COVID-19, as of now, there are about 151 emergency rental assistance programs around the country. Their main challenge is lack of resources. The demand for those emergency rental assistance programs far outstrip the resources that are available. Well, it seems to me that a moratorium without cash, I'm not sure I understand the thinking behind that. People aren't going to suddenly have four months of back rent ready when the, when the moratorium ends, but also right. a cash assistance keeps the landlord paid. So I, I don't, I mean, giving people money just seems like the most direct and straightforward way to do this. Right. Well, I, we need both. Yeah. I mean, the, the eviction moratoriums assure people that they're not going to lose their homes right. in the middle of a pandemic. And that's the very least the federal government ought to do. So there shouldn't be a patchwork of state, local, and federal eviction moratoriums that protect only some renters. We need a uniform national eviction moratorium for non-payment of rent for the duration of the pandemic. But exactly, eviction moratoriums on their own aren't enough because they create a financial cliff for renters to fall off of when the moratoriums eventually are lifted and back rent is owed and the renters are no more able to pay the rent then than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's why emergency rental assistance is so essential. It's essential to keeping low-income renters stably housed during and after the pandemic. And as you say, small landlords can't continue to maintain and operate their properties without rental income coming in. And so, you know, the last thing we want to do is end this crisis having saddled low-income people with more debt that they can't dig out from, or having lost some of our country's essential housing stock. And providing emergency rental assistance helps us avoid both of those harmful outcomes. Well, people about to be put out on the street, and I, I understand the moratoria are sometimes just on the execution of the order. Landlords were allowed to do all the paperwork, so the minute the moratorium ends, those people can be put out. But that's just the sharpest edge, maybe you could say, of what is really a huge problem in the United States. So let's talk about the coalition's annual out-of-reach report. What does that report diagnose, and what are the the major findings from this latest one? Well, the findings from this report and from many reports that we put out that quantify 
the shortage of homes affordable for the lowest income people are that rents are far out of reach for low income people. They are tremendously out of reach for minimum wage workers, but also for the average renter who earns much less than what the average rent costs. And we also know that we have a severe shortage of homes affordable and available to the lowest income people in our country. So for every 10 of the lowest income renters, there are fewer than four apartments that are affordable and available to them. So because rents are so far out of reach for low-income people and because we have such a shortage of homes affordable to them, we have nearly 8 million of the lowest-income renter households, so about 25 million people in these households, who are paying at least half of their income towards their rent every month, and many are paying much more. They're paying 60, 70, 80 percent of their income just to keep a roof over their heads. And so when you have such limited income to begin with, and you're paying so much of it for your home, you're always one financial emergency away from missing rent and facing potentially eviction and, in worst cases, homelessness. So for many of these same renters, the coronavirus is that financial emergency. They're losing jobs. They're losing hours at work. They're losing wages. And it's harder than ever for them to cobble together what's needed to pay rent. Well, it's almost, uh, oh yeah, of course, that Black and Latinx people are the most affected, but that shouldn't mean that we don't think about the particular reasons why that is. No, that's exactly right. People of color are most at risk. And to be clear, without immediate federal action, those millions of people who will be evicted from their homes in the coming months will be predominantly Black and Latino people. And, you know, the current crises have heightened the threat of eviction for Black and brown renters, but the threat is not new. Decades of racist housing policies from redlining and blockbusting, restrictive covenants, restrictive zoning, put homeownership out of reach purposefully out of reach for people of color and created this yawning wealth gap where today the average white household has 12 times the wealth of the average black household. And so this structural racism leaves people of color disproportionately low income, disproportionately rent burdened, and disproportionately likely to be homeless. So these inequities now compound the harm done by COVID-19. Black and Native American people bear the brunt of infections and fatalities. Latino and Black people bear the brunt of historic job losses. And now their homes, and with it, their family's ability to stay safe and healthy, are at risk. Well, the Out-at-Reach report has a section on the systemic shortage of affordable housing. And I'm struck by the word systemic there. What what does that mean in this context? It's really a, a market failure. Oh, it is a market failure. That's exactly right. There's no way to build and maintain apartments that are affordable to extremely low-income people without government intervention. And that's because the rent that extremely low-income people can pay doesn't cover the cost of maintaining and operating apartments. So that's a market failure. 
And that is where there is an essential federal government role to step in and correct that failure and ensure that homes are affordable to the lowest income people. But unfortunately, for decades, the federal government has continuously underfunded solutions to keep the lowest income people affordably housed. And so we have a system in our country today where only one in every four households who needs housing assistance and is eligible for it receives any. So 75% of low-income families who are eligible for and need housing assistance don't get any. They are instead having to wait in long lines, adding their names to long waiting lists, hoping to win what's essentially a housing lottery Mm -hmm. in our system, where only the lucky 25% get the help that they need to be affordably housed. Well, it's immoral to allow millions to lose their homes because they've lost their job, maybe all the more so in a pandemic. But as with many things, if it's wrong now, isn't it always wrong? You know, it also seems societally stupid, you know. Um, It just doesn't make sense. And there are other visions, and this is a time for big ideas. So let me just ask you, what can we do? What can we be doing to make the changes we want to see? Well, you know, the solutions to the crisis are pretty simple, even if they're not easy. Like, you know, during a pandemic, let's make sure that we keep people who are experiencing homelessness safe and alive, and we get them as quickly as possible into housing, and we ensure that nobody else becomes homeless during a pandemic. And to do that, we need a national uniform moratorium on evictions for the duration of a pandemic. We need at least $100 billion in emergency rental assistance, and we need additional funds for homeless shelter and service providers to keep people experiencing homelessness safe and to get them quickly housed. And I should mention that each of those three solutions have been passed by the U.S. House of Representatives not once but twice, and there are multiple bills in the Senate to do the same. Now we need the Senate Republican majority to act on those solutions. But we can't stop there. This immediate housing crisis sits on top of a long-term systemic housing shortage. And those solutions, too, are pretty simple, if not easy. We need to build more apartments that are affordable to the lowest-income people through programs like the National Housing Trust Fund. We need to bridge the gap between what people earn and what rent costs through rental assistance. We need to provide emergency cash assistance to stabilize families through a financial emergency. And, of course, we have to preserve the affordable housing that exists in our country today. And, you know, allowing homelessness and housing poverty to exist in our country has always been a public policy choice. And we can instead choose to end it. The only thing that we lack and that we've always lacked is the political will to actually fund the solutions at the scale necessary. And maybe, maybe a moment like this helps us build that political will to actually make change. We've been speaking with Diane Yentel of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. You can find their work, including the new report, Out of Reach 2020, The High Cost of Housing, on the site nlihc.org. Diane Yentel, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
One Congress member said it would be a stunning act of sabotage if the new head of the U.S. Postal Service is allowed to push through major changes. Big Trump donor, surprise, Louis DeJoy issued a series of memos disclosed to the Washington Post calling for significant operational changes, including restrictions on overtime that many, including the Postal Workers Union, contend would slow down mail delivery. At the same time as Donald Trump holds up crucial pandemic support for USPS, contingent on it making steep price increases. Sabotage starts to sound like quite an apt description. But what we should know is that this direct attack on the Postal Service, while it may be felt especially acutely during a pandemic and an election in which the most reasonable response is voting by mail, is absolutely nothing new. Only the latest iteration of a decades-long assault on the U.S. Postal Service, featuring some characters and some ideas with which you might be, unfortunately, familiar. Lisa Graves is executive director and editor-in-chief at True North Research and author of the new brief, The Billionaire Behind Efforts to Kill the U.S. Postal Service. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's like the slowest daylight robbery in history, this effort to privatize the U.S. Postal Service, something about a federal agency that serves everyone and doesn't make rich people a lot richer, just galls the heck out of some people. We can't cover every minute, of course, but take us through some of the history and the key players in this effort. Sure. What we discovered in our research was that Charles Koch, who's one of the richest billionaires in the world and who leads one of the biggest privately held corporations in the world, Koch Industries, has been staking efforts by people who have been working to privatize the Postal Service for more than five decades, basically. So we traced the early funding of Charles Koch of the Reason Magazine and Reason Foundation as it was working to popularize the term privatization and specifically target the Postal Service for privatization. Also, after Charles Koch became the biggest funder of the Libertarian Party, its platform included direct abolition of the Postal Service. Then in the 80s, his right-hand man went on a commission set up by Reagan that also called for the privatization of the Postal Service. His group then brought on board the Reagan administration official who was behind that, a guy named James Miller, who continued to push for postal privatization through the 90s. He was rewarded with a position on the Postal Board of Governors during the George W. Bush administration, pushed through in part by Susan Collins of Maine. And then he used his post as the chairman of that board to push through this effort in 2006 to saddle our Postal Service with extraordinary, unprecedented debt to pay future retiree health benefits 50 years into the future. And that debt has really been a huge obstacle for the Postal Service over these past several years and including its current book. And so you have a a multi-decade campaign fueled by Koch men to privatize the most popular government agency, the one that serves more people than any other agency in our entire government. And now with the help of Trump and his political appointee, Lou DeJoy, trying to make the Postal Service less effective, we have a combination of forces that puts our Postal Service at grave risk. Well, I wanted to draw you out on on one part, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, because 
you know, we often hear in the press that the problem is the Postal Service just can't compete, you know, with UPS and with FedEx. But that is part of the reason that folks call this a manufactured crisis. But it often appears, if it appears as kind of a an allegation of some critics or somehow it's not a minor, it's just a minor part of the story. Can you just talk a little bit more about that pre-funding requirement? Sure. This pre-funding requirement was imposed after other George W. Bush insiders looked at privatizing the Postal Service and felt that having potential future liabilities would be an obstacle to privatization. So the next thing that happened was that James Miller pushed through the Congress this effort to move that debt into a fund or that potential future debt into a fund. And what it did was take enormous sums that the Postal Service had in savings, put that into that account and impose a nearly $5 billion payment each year for those future liabilities. It was really designed to make the Postal Service more attractive to privatization. And Susan Collins helped instrumentally with that, along with Mitch McConnell, who strongly supported James Miller's appointment to the Postal Board of Governors. And so you have the person who's now at the helm of the Senate, who's in a position to do the right thing by the American people and by people in cities and small towns everywhere to save the Postal Service. Instead, you have someone who has worked behind the scenes to aid this effort to weaken our Postal Service. No private company and no government agency has any such requirement of that sort of future funding or to carry that liability on their books. And taking away those assets of the Postal Service deprives it of additional liquidity to help it to modernize its fleet, for example, its postal trucks, to have them be more fuel efficient, to be modernized. And so you have a situation here where this Postal Service is the backbone in many ways of key parts of our economy, of the chains of distribution in our country, the processing of hundreds of millions of pieces of mail, things that cannot be substituted by email, people's prescriptions and checks and goods in this pandemic. These postal workers have been on the front lines as essential workers getting deliveries to neighbors everywhere in the country, and yet they're being attacked by the head of their own agency, trying to deprive them of the ability to deliver the mail on time as people expect. Corporate media often convey tacitly or explicitly the idea that whatever it is, the private sector does it better. And whatever it is, government should be assumed to be messing it up. You know, that's the kind of assumption atmosphere before you even get to the news. So perversely, those who want a public service to stay public are seen as inserting ideology. But who imagines that Charles Koch is putting all that energy into something that isn't supportive of the ideologies we see reflected in his investments elsewhere? And and part of that is not being a big fan of democracy, but it's also, and it's not often talked about, it's also not caring about the particular human beings who would be hurt by eliminating the U.S. Postal Service. And it's not just the the folks who rely on it, but it's also the workers, right? That's right. The Postal Service employs more than 500,000 Americans. It's the second largest civilian employer in the United States. And unlike Walmart, which is the biggest employer, the Postal Service workers aren't subsidized with public assistance because of super ultra low wages like Walmart has paid its employees. Instead, you have a workforce that is very diverse, In some cities, a significant portion of the workers are African-Americans, like in Chicago. It's a workforce that has 100,000 former veterans, military veterans uh, that make it up. It has 
tremendous track record. It is the most popular brand in America and the most trusted government agency. And yet, largely because one billionaire has had such singular focus on this extreme privatization agenda, he's been able to move that fringe idea from those fringes into almost domination within the Republican Party, unfortunately. And that's at odds with a longstanding history of bipartisan, transpartisan support for this vital public service that, in fact, the private sector can't do better, would gouge us for, would charge us so much more as we already see in the prices charged, in my opinion, by FedEx and UPS for other deliveries. And who aren't incentivized to go all the way out on those rural roads, you know, where the post office goes just because that's that's part of their job. Exactly, exactly. And so many times Congress has spoken about the importance of the Postal Service as tying the nation together, making sure that every American, no matter how remotely they live, no matter how big the city is they live in, even through hurricanes like Katrina, through pandemics like this crisis, you have postal workers who have worked to deliver the mail, come rain or come shine, and make sure people's mail both gets to them and that their ballots, for example, get to clerks of court. So they're a vital function in our society. They should not be privatized. And this effort by Trump, by McConnell, by Snow and others to really move the post service toward privatization is a fundamental rejection of this core institution that was actually named and created in our United States Constitution. Well, the American Postal Workers Union is fighting back. There's a worker-led coalition, U.S. Mail Not for Sale. What can folks do to be part of the pushback on this assault on the U.S. Postal Service? Well, I would really urge everybody to call every member of Congress, no matter their party, to demand that they protect the Postal Service, to demand that the Postal Service receive some funds as part of these COVID relief measures, that it receive some ability to have some loans, and that it be released from this debt obligation that is unprecedented. I also think, quite frankly, that they should be asking for the resignation of the Board of Governors that approved a to joy for this position because we need someone in charge of the Postal Service that is devoted to preserving it and expanding it as a vital public service. And also, when they're calling and asking for support for the Postal Service, I'd ask them to repeal that 2006 Act, which also barred the Postal Service from having offering banking services or cafes or other uh, services that would help make it stronger and more flourishing and also is an undue cap on postal service activity that people may need and want. Well, we've been speaking with Lisa Graves of True North. They're online at truenorthresearch.org. And you can find the brief, The Billionaire Behind Efforts to Kill the U.S. Postal Service, on inthepublicinterest.org. Lisa Graves, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The website's also the place to get subscription information for Fair's newsletter, Extra, to sign up for our Action Alert Network, or to show support for the show, if you're so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.